my my family embraced a myth of the old South. You know, they didn't. We didn't have any enslaved people. Or, you know, it's like people. We were we were poor farmers. But you know, it was always comforting to have this. Let's go to this historic site and hear our story. Well, it wasn't our story, but uh, it did um, provide for me this sort of uh, interest in the power of place. And why would a group of people um, go to a house in the middle of nowhere in Culpeper County or Rappahannock County or where we went to a lot of different places? Why would you gather at that particular spot with your casserole um, and not some other place? You know, and so this notion that that places and objects have power beyond themselves um, is something that that was a fundamental part of growing up. Uh, that there was this, you know, this is what you do, um, and you know that was sort of the introduction to um, what it could be, where I could be. And discovered that that I might that there was an ability that I had to to weave a story that in fact these places needed to do a better job of telling compelling stories. This is artists at work, stories from people who make the arts their business. I'm Thomas Breeden. That was Bill Martin, the executive director of the Valentine in Richmond, Virginia. The Valentine is a historic house and museum dedicated to collecting, preserving, and interpreting the history of the city. Martin works to translate the Valentine's vast archives, from photographs to clothing to papers and more, into complex and compelling narratives. Particularly, as he explains, since Richmond is largely known to outsiders as the former capital of the Confederacy, and not much else. If you ask someone, most of the people across the country, the only thing they know about us is that we were the capital of the Confederacy. That's not their problem. That's our problem. Because we have not, as a community, asserted a broader narrative. And until we deal with the entire issue that, yes, in fact, we were the capital of the Confederacy. But we were also the, the, the critical place in the founding of the country. And that our Monument Avenue is not about the Civil War, but is about the imposition of Jim Crow in the South. That then, that until we can, can you know, because people people think that capital of Confederacy is a direct line to Miami Avenue, and then they while there's there is connection, the the impulse for Miami Avenue is a different impulse, and that story's gotten lost because we we allow people to go directly from Miami to to the capital of the Confederacy. When we ought to be going, okay, monuments are actually related to problems established in our Constitution that allow the imposition of a minority to control the political process in a way that was entirely legal because of the controls. So it's really sort of an interesting, I think we, we what we allow ourselves, I mean, and you know, we can't be afraid of it. And, I mean, I think that that's one of the problems that we got a lot of people that cringe when it's said, 
because for most of America, we haven't provided a compelling narrative that confronts that as not just Richmond. So until we do that, we're going to be the capital of the Confederacy. And we're, you know, and what's fascinating to me is we love saying, well, we're about beer. And we're about great food. So we are in many ways are diverting interest uh, away from the thing that we need to talk about. And it is one of our great strengths. You know, there's no other city, really, um, that can tell this broad narrative. You know, for Boston, it's really the revolution. Um, but when you think about what what place can do native to civil rights, there are not a lot of places. There's only some other East Coast places that can do it, but no one can do it as well, particularly in that early national stuff, um, than Richmond. You, you could, Philadelphia can make its claims, but the fact is Philadelphia doesn't have, doesn't become the, the vortex of Jim Crow. And Philadelphia doesn't really talk about civil rights. Just that, that American narrative is the thing that is the thing that we can do. The Valentine's home, the Wickham House, is located just blocks from other Richmond historical landmarks. The neighborhood provides Martin with a greater opportunity to tell that American narrative and to highlight parts of the city's roots that are often overshadowed by the legacy of the Civil War. I think the house is actually under the Wickham House, which is where we started, is actually undervalued in terms of the story it can tell. Because again, Richmond is obsessively focused on the Civil War um, because that's what's present. And yet, if you just look just a little bit deeper, you begin to understand that Richmond has more to do with the founding. Um, that what we look like today, the issues that we have related to the way Congress works, who gets to vote, how we get to vote, what's the role of the Supreme Court, what are the fundamental rights that we have, the Bill of Rights, all those things which are still problematic for us today were hardwired into that Constitution. And so who's doing that? It's Virginians. You know, who are the first presidents? They're all Virginians. Do you talk? We don't talk about that. We don't talk about that as Virginia being the sort of political force, uh, a force that is actually skewed because Virginia has the largest enslaved population, which means that because of that, their vote is the, their political power and prominence is actually exaggerated because they, the folks get to include three-fifths of the enslaved population in the count. So for those first years of the New Republic, Virginia's is political power is, is weighted um, by the presence uh, of the enslaved community. Then the capital moves to Richmond from Williamsburg. There is no constitution, right? So it's 1788 before there's a constitution. So in between you have, you know, Jefferson's statue for religious freedom, 
which ultimately becomes a fundamental part of the Bill of Rights. It's the, the Bill of Rights would not be there were it not for Virginians and for the power of the Commonwealth and Richmond as the capital. And, and John Marshall's a block away. There would be no judicial review. There wouldn't be the kind of clear, murky, clear, murky uh, separation of powers were it not for the folks that are around this neighborhood. And you and with Wickham, Wickham is interesting because he's a loyalist. He doesn't think that any of it's a good idea. Um, and so this notion that there was opposition even then, that there were people that didn't think this, this American experiment was, was going to work. And they're all kind of living here together. So what is that? And so I think that, that for Richmond we have, if we push our history back, we, certainly the Civil War is a, pivot, is a pivot point, but there are other pivot points that are just as significant. And I think the, 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 the founding pivot is one that we need to rediscover. And I think that, that the, this, the second pivot is the 1890, when Jim Crow becomes the official, uh, this, the focal political, the focal political organization and structure for the entire South. And, and, it, it, and that, that pivot does not break again until the 1950s. And Richmond Pay plays an important role in American civil rights. Uh, we don't talk about in 1968, there are riots in Richmond, Virginia. We don't talk about the students who walked every day from Virginia Union uh, for the sit-ins in Richmond. And some of the important legal challenges uh, really uh, were originating in Richmond and in Virginia. So I, I think that that part of the challenge for people who do history is to, again, provide additional uh, perspectives that push you to think differently about the city. We're not just the civil. There are all these other things that, in fact, may have more influence and impact on what we think about the city today than the thing we think is the most important. Still, many people, including some Richmonders, only have a surface-level understanding of the multifaceted history of the city. That's because, Martin says, it's human nature to discard the parts of history that don't fit into the preferred narrative. It's his role and the role of the museum since its founding in 1898 to be useful in bringing a longer-term perspective to community conversations about how Richmond engages with its history. We have a trustee here. He's been a volunteer and trustee for a very long time. In fact, I think she started in the mid-50s. She's still here. And she says, you know, the reason that she's been involved all these years is that the Valentine, where whatever is going on in the city and broader culture, has tried to be useful. And so what are the useful conversations that we need today? Um, monuments, monumental is certainly that opportunity to say, okay, you are, as a community, we are so focused on a half mile of real estate. When Miami Avenue is actually five and a half miles. And that we need to, to begin to look more broadly at all the monuments. So we have a much broader range of monuments that have existed from, you know, 
or that first one, first at least first European monument when Christopher Newport erected a cross. You know. Uh, so what do all these monuments mean in together, and can we use the monuments in some way to construct a narrative of the history of the city? Uh, and one of the key ways of doing that is to actually say, given this inventory, given this inventory, what's missing? And then suddenly you see that there's a giant hole. Uh, suddenly you see that you can take that street, uh, you can take Monument Avenue, you follow it down, you pass a number of things. You pass the newspaper, you pass the women's club, the Como Club, you keep going, you end up at the Capitol. There's the Supreme Court on one side. You keep going. And where do you end up? You dead end in Chaco Bottom, uh, which is the parking lot. And so the obvious is what do we what's above ground that if you were a visitor, if you were a kid on your school bus going to school, what's the story that you see? And it provides this compelling and undeniable coin that we need to do something with Shaco Bottom um, and the story of the Richmond's critical role in the domestic slave trade. Um, so it's, it's, it's an, again, sort of how do you take the regular way people have t- told the story, how you pull back, maybe look at it a little differently, and suddenly with monuments is a perfect example. And so we're also, there was going to be part two. And part two of monuments is a project that's being done by Storefront for Community Design and VC School for the Arts. And it is an international competition to redesign, to reimagine the entire street, so all five and a half miles. So if you could start over, and it does not assume that the monuments stay, or you know, so that whatever the designers want to do, they can. Um, and so that opens on Valentine's Day. Um, our Valentine to the city uh, will be uh, this an exhibition of a few of the submissions and so there'll be a panel of, of designers that will pick the top five I'm not, I'm not sure of the number and then there will be an opportunity for the public uh, during the run, of the, the run of the show to pick their favorite so we'll see but again you, you can't if there's a conversation if there's a, a conversation in the community where history should be present the valentine because it is the holder of that city's history needs to be at that table involving the valentine and similar organizations in these discussions helps to provide the context and nuance that are often at odds with accepting a more simple narrative i think we love this sort of nice simple narrative um but there's this nuance of race and ethnicity and gender and all these things that we've, you know, we, we think about as we do the work of, of history in the community today. There are all these things that 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 are their own filters against that history. And if you put them all together, if you lay them all together, suddenly you've got this very different. When you look through all of them, you see a very different way of telling this the story, and you see a very 
different story. Um, and it's more than this. It's that history's longer than the, the few years of the Civil War, that not everything we think about the city, uh, well, it, it, it informs everything, but not everything that we see in the city is purely race. Um, that there's some subtlety, that we there's some nuance there that we need to think about. Um, and that how do we do that? Um, and you know whether it's here or I think that we'll see a lot of that nuance um, at the American Civil War Museum, um, where they're 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 really drilling down on what did Richmond look like during the Civil War? What are the implications of the war beyond stories that people haven't heard that they don't? You know, looking at and they're looking at some public health. Uh, issues of the war, so you know, rising venereal disease. You know, so these things that we don't have never talked about. You know, are things that are part of that story that that make these folks look a little different. People on monuments. Um, there's some new work that there's a new exhibition that uh, Virginia Museum of History and Culture that's looking at. Um, the, the enslaved population, particularly in Tidewater, Virginia, so the emergence of, of the slave economy in Virginia that, that I think opens in the coming months, that's going to really have us rethink, you know, one, Virginia's role in the, in the trade, but more critically, Richmond's role in the domestic trade. Um, because Richmonders, again, Try to comfort themselves. Well, it was you know ships coming from Africa for sale in Richmond. Well, the story is really much is a much more difficult story because it, the story here is that we were selling. We, it was internal trade. We were breeding people for sale, and that to think that three hundred fifty to five hundred thousand people are sold out of Shaco Bottom. And there's not, there's very little there to provoke that memory. Um, and so I think all of us uh, in the sort of arts culture side are all playing around this issue, not playing, but are, are, are really considering how we can reassert the unique narrative of the city that no one else can do um, as we gain attention for all the things that, you know, the, we're on every great list in the world that when we ask people that are, that choose to, to remain in Richmond, um, why do you stay here? Um, they usually go, great music, great food. Uh, but the third piece that they always say is, I love my neighborhood. And so that tells me that the Valentine needs to make sure that rather than connecting folks that are here as tourists or as residents with our monuments, we actually need to connect them with the personal connection to their neighborhoods. Martin has spearheaded countless interview projects at the Valentine to chronicle the lives and stories of Richmonders who lived in now defunct neighborhoods. He believes in the power of those micro-level stories to inform the broader narrative of Richmond 
and connect its citizens to its history. He lives in a historic home himself, saying that if his job responsibility is the city, then he needs to be a part of that city. Looking to the future, though, he sees his field shifting focus from the places themselves towards the communities that historical and cultural organizations can form around those places. I think it's, it's really looking beyond what we think a historic place is. You know, there are traditional views of what these buildings should be, what should happen within them. And I think the role of the next generation of leaders in the profession are people that can take those traditions and strengths and begin to use them in ways that connect in real ways to the communities that they serve. And so if you are simply focused on the, the work within the collection and research that there's a part of your there's a part of your responsibility being an institution that you somehow that we need to make sure is cultivated. So I think making sure that both on the personal level and institutional level we're always asking so how can I personally take responsibility for this particular idea, this particular thing that, that is a pressing community need. I have these amazing resources. And making those sometimes obscure connections between the, the archives and our decorative arts collections and our historic house, the ability to make those connections to bigger ideas is the key. And that's going to be the, the skill that's most needed in, in uh, history museums and cultural properties because it's, it's, um, it's a, it is a interesting and challenging time for, for history. Uh, we've seen across the country, you know, sort of declining interest, declining attendance particularly in smaller sites. And so lots of organizations are threatened uh, with their very survival because they haven't been able to make that connection. And I think for someone going into the, to the field, beginning to see that they're not just a curator, that you, that we all as part of institutions have a fundamental role in forwarding a conversation about the meaning of this place and the meaning of its history. Thanks for listening to Artists at Work, a podcast from Artstitution. This episode was written and produced by me, Thomas Breeden, with special thanks to my guest, Bill Martin. If you liked this episode, please reach out to us on social media at Artstitution to let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to go the extra mile, please consider becoming an Artist at Work patron. A contribution of any size helps us keep making the show, and you'll get some cool bonus content along the way. Learn more at artstitution.org.